Warning, All Things Crime is a true crime production that may contain violent or disturbing material. Viewer or listener discretion is advised. So when you say standard, can you explain that really quick? Sure. Um, usually what um, how we get a DNA standard from a person, we call it a known, is um, a buccal swab or an oral swab. You just take, it looks like a Q-tip, just take a swab um, and rub it on the inside of their mouths. And then that way we know, okay, that's that person's DNA. Um, and we use DNA in forensics because it's the same throughout your body. It's the same throughout your lifetime. And at certain locations, um, right now we look at 24 locations, it's variable from for every person in the world. So that's how we can come up and say, it matches this person and only this person. Ashley and Nicole, welcome to All Things Crime. Appreciate you coming on this morning. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. All right. For those of you watching and listening, I appreciate you being here with an, another episode of All Things Crime. And we have two special guests this, uh, this morning, and I'm really excited about it. Richland County Sheriff is one of the very first offices that bought an MVAC system, and they're out there in the heart of South Carolina, which is absolutely gorgeous country if you've never been there. And, you know, just getting to know them was just a, a treat for me. And I love traveling out there. I've been out there a number of times. And uh, these ladies are just uh, perfectionists at what they do. They are absolutely skilled and they are uh, amazing people. And I really appreciate you guys coming on. So let's, um, Ashley, let's start with you. Okay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into being a DNA serologist? Um, so I have a biology degree from Coastal Carolina University um, in South Carolina. Um, I started here in 2008 and as an admin assistant, and then they needed extra hands in the lab. And I started, um, I then went into being a technician where I picked up the evidence, cut the evidence for the analyst and passed it on to them. And then I went to Charleston for some um, extra training in serology where we did case um, pretend casework and blood analysis, looking for semen and a little bit of saliva. Um, and then I became a serologist here. So I do all of the, well, I do mostly all of the um, looking for blood, looking for semen, and we don't do uh, saliva testing. So I just do the blood and semen and also cut out the evidence for the analyst. Awesome. How, how about you, Nicole? Uh, so I'm in my eighth year as a forensic DNA analyst. Uh, started out at Indiana State Police and then um, we decided the weather was horrible and uh, wanted to move to the south. So I've been at Richland County for a year and a half, um, and what I do mostly, sometimes I'll process, but uh, most of the time, once Ashley's done um, processing and analyzing the evidence for body fluids or potential sources of DNA, 
Uh, she cuts all those out and gives them to me. And I go ahead and attempt to develop a DNA profile from those samples um, from the crime scenes and then compare those DNA profiles to uh, the profiles I developed from the standards. And I can say if it's a match or not. So when you say standard, can you explain that really quick? Sure. Um, usually what, um, how we get a DNA standard from a person, we call it a known, is um, a buckle swab or an oral swab. You just take, it looks like a Q-tip, just take a swab um, and rub it on the inside of their mouths. And then that way we know, okay, that's that person's DNA. Um, and we use DNA in forensics because it's the same throughout your body. It's the same throughout your lifetime. And at certain locations, um, right now we look at 24 locations, it's variable from for every person in the world. So that's how we can come up and say, it matches this person and only this person. Yeah. And those buckle swabs are interesting because as I travel all over the world, I, I tend to, uh, especially labs, they, they want me to give a reference sample so that if my yeah. DNA should show up somewhere, they always have me, they, they know that they hopefully can exclude me from whatever case they're working on. And yeah, I actually had to give my, a, a buckle swab to the Oman crime lab mm -hmm. and have to say, I was a little nervous on that one, but you know, it's, um, there's there's professionals like you guys all over the world, and it's amazing what you guys can do. And um, I especially, I, I think one of the things that the audience is most interested in is how DNA has evolved, like over the last 20 years. I, I don't, and Nicole, how how long did you say you've been doing this? Um, I'm in my eighth year, but I did take um, seven years off. So I started in 2007. Okay. And that was right when um, technology was changing where you used to have, um, you used to need like a, the size of a quarter for like blood, um, semen, saliva, just those body fluids um, to develop a profile. And right when I came in was when they had developed the technology and the kits where you could start getting DNA profiles from just touch samples, someone touching something. But it's, it's interesting how it used to take I mean, literally, like you said, the, the size of a quarter, they, the amount, imagine a, a blood spot the size of a quarter in order to get any real useful information. And how much do you need now? Uh, just two cells. That's two it. cells. Yes. Okay. That's a new one. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've heard 10 to 12. That's two cells. Oh, that's a, just absolutely staggering. So mm -hmm. I know on, on previous podcasts, we've talked about you need, or you slough off about 400,000 cells a day. So when you are trying to differentiate whose DNA it is, uh, well, first of all, uh, Ashley, let's, let's have, let's go to you on this one. So when you're looking at a piece of evidence and, uh, let's, let's just go with touch DNA because that's, that's the type of DNA that's deposited the most, right? Yes. So if you are looking for touch DNA and there's several individuals that you think, like say the victim shirt you're looking at, how would you go through that process? So first off, I would ask the investigators if they have like any video or if they have any witnesses saying like an individual grabbed him on the, sh the collar or um, around their waist or somewhere like that. So first I would ask the investigators where they think that touch um, DNA would be 
And then I would um, use, go to that, go to the evidence and scrape it with a scalpel or, and swab it, or um, they sometimes want us to invac it. So then I would invac the shirt. I'm Mike Morford, and I've been researching the Zodiac case for years. Zodiac, just the name. It sounds sinister. It inspires fear. The fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing. He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. And the attacks, they were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished, but he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Um, wherever they think that the victim or the suspect may have touched. And considering they only need a few cells for somebody else's DNA to get uh, mixed in there, how, how do you separate that out? So th- at that point, we asked for a victim's buckle swab so we can eliminate them from that mixture. And possibly any, anybody else like a boyfriend or something like that? Yes. Anybody that may have touched that shirt or maybe in the house, children, boyfriends, uh, parents, anybody that, that may potentially be on that shirt so we can exclude them. And when you say exclude, you're talking uh, that eliminates them from the process or what do you think? See, that's more of Nikki's area. Um, so, um, you know, we have the database CODIS combined DNA index system. Um, the only profiles that can go into that are uh, known standards. Um, and from crime scenes, it's the unknown suspect only. We don't want to put that person's boyfriend in or the victim in. So um, when she's talking about like, we're getting those elimination standards, that way, if we get an unknown profile and we think, let's say it's the victim's shirt, and they said, well, the, the suspect grabbed my shirt. Um, we can, you know, we see, okay, victims on there and someone else. That way we can say, okay, well, it's not boyfriend and it's not, you know, they're kids. So most likely it's that suspect. Let's put it into CODIS and see if it matches those convicted offenders or um, the, you know, suspects, arrestees, juveniles that have been put in as knowns. The, the reason I'm asking this is I was a guest on another podcast, and it's uh, interestingly enough, it was a couple of uh, ladies that are engineers, and the, the, the topic was more along the genealogical DNA, but it was also, they, they were fascinating with just like STR type DNA where you, we have the CODIS database, and you know one of the fears was that people's DNA is being used without their consent and Mm -hmm. it's just kind of arbitrarily out there. And with the, the lab equipment and the processes becoming so sensitive that people are going to start getting convicted just based on their DNA that they left, you know, riding on the subway or something like that. And as one of my things was, I was like, look, first of all, you probably will never be convicted just based on 
one piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Like even if somebody has your DNA profile, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get convicted. It's just one piece of the puzzle. And from you guys, once, once you develop that DNA profile, you hand that back to the detectives and then they have to go back to work and say, well, based on this new piece of evidence, what does that do for the case? So in you guys' experience, how can, number one, you know, can you elaborate at all on that? And two, based on your experience with working cases, how does your, you know, once you develop, do your work and hopefully develop a good profile, how does that further the case uh, from you guys' perspective? So I think uh, once they get, like, we do CODIS notes um, and also uh, reports. So when we give that to the um, investigators, then they they do have a lead um, and then they can go talk to that person that may be a suspect or is on that piece of evidence and ask them why they may be on that piece of evidence. Working in the crime lab, probably, you know, we should fear it the most because, you know, our DNA is all over that lab, you know. I mean, of course, we like clean and everything, but um, I've never heard of anybody just being like arrested just because, you know, uh, they get a CODIS match. Um, of course, you know, then it goes to the, you know, the investigator, like she said, to go and see, okay, where were they at yeah. that time? You know, do have they had, you know, a history of, of breaking into houses or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I understand that that could be, um, people's fear, but, um, it's kind of, you know, it's how it's always been like, just because you were, someone saw you near the scene of the crime that, you know, that doesn't mean that you're, you're going to go and get arrested and get convicted of that crime, spend forever in prison. So, yeah. At least, at least you hope not. Right. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Well, that would be it's, on the investigator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So you guys uh, do work both for the uh, prosecution and the defense, correct? Um, I, I've never, yes, we're unbiased. Yes. Uh, we will go and testify for either one. I've actually, I haven't personally testified for the defense, but I did see some forensic scientists go and, you know, they called and, um, they, they testified to the evidence. We're going to testify, um, the same way, whether it's prosecution or defense. So, yeah. Yeah. I've never, I've never testified for defense, but it does before. happen. Yeah. Well, I, I know a lot of, uh, former lab people that have gone off and like almost consultants now, and they, they do not so much, uh, testifying because they're, they're typically not involved directly with processing and, and creating the DNA profile. So I know it's usually the prosecution that mm -hmm. is calling you guys because that DNA evidence is, is typically incriminating against the defendant. Mm -hmm. But I, I thought, what you said there, Nikki, was really, um, really important because you said it, it wouldn't matter if it was the defense or the prosecution, you would testify the same way. Mm -hmm. So kind of elaborate on that, if you would, you know, when you, when you're on the stand and you have a DNA profile that, you know, between you and Ashley, you've, you've developed it. And maybe Ashley, you can talk about maybe an experience on the stand as well. What's, what, you know, what's that like? What, what is it that you are, when you're testifying, what is it you're testifying about? The facts of the evidence. I mean, the evidence doesn't lie. 
I'm just there. If it's for the defense or if it's against the defense, that's just the facts that we come up with um, on the evidence. So, and it well, maybe, maybe also, um, <laughs> why is that important? Why is it important for you guys to be pretty much perceived as neutral? I think it's important to have somebody completely unbiased. Um, I mean, if we knew somebody in the case, we'd have to take ourselves off. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be a DNA analyst for like my neighbor's um, case, you know, house they were broken into. Um, that way, you know, when you go and testify, uh, that person's getting a fair trial. We're just going to go. Um, we we do give opinions um, that as, as DNA analysts. I will give my opinion on. Uh, whether this was a match or not, but it, it's always um, verified by a technical reviewer mm -hmm. who's also unbiased on the case. Um, and then that way, you know, nobody could ever say, well, you're just saying that that DNA matches because, you know, that's your friend and, you know, the guy on the stand is your enemy and you don't like him and you want to see him in prison forever. Um, I think that's just, that goes to help the justice system, um, you know, make a fair trial. We just, we are trained to, um, you know, how to look at the evidence and give our opinions and say a match or not. Um, and then also we, we give statistics for if we say a match, that's a positive association. Um, we go ahead and give statistics that are completely unbiased. That's based on, um, you know, population genetics with groups of people that are unknown to that, you know, everybody in the case, including us. Um, so, you know, just going in and stating the facts and then letting the jury decide, you know, if that person's innocent or guilty, I think that makes everything fair. I'm Mike Morford, and I've been researching the Zodiac case for years. Zodiac, just the name. It sounds sinister. It inspires fear. The fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing. He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. And the attacks... They were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished. But he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.